Welcome back to Wonderland at Frank. I'm Tracy Van Slyke. Today, we are going to hear the talk of our very own Bridget Antoinette Evans, one she gave back in 2017. Yes. And <laughs> then <laughs> we are going to talk to visionary <laughs> philanthropist Taryn Higashi, the executive director of Unbound Philanthropy. To give some context around Bridget's talk and why she even sounded like that, this is the first time that Bridget took the stage and really owned the work that she had been doing behind the scenes for years with many different social change organizations and foundations. And so Bridget, you want to give us a little insight about what it was like to step onto that Frank stage and what led you there? Sure. Um, So I had been consulting as a culture change strategy designer for years, and I was really invisible behind the scenes, except to the brilliant people I was working with. So this was kind of a coming out moment for me, and it was really, really hard. Well, it may have been hard for you, but it was a beautiful thing to watch, and it had a huge impact. It brought a new kind of legitimacy to the culture change arena. And this talk helped organizations understand more about the work you were doing, and they were actually able to imagine what culture change work could do and how they could be a part of it. It came at a really pivotal moment within the emerging field of culture change, which we're gonna talk more about in a bit, but first, let's listen to Bridget. I'm Bridget Antoinette Evans, and I have spent the bulk of my career working at the intersection of art, pop culture, and social change. First, as a theater actor and producer, fascinated with the question of how a play could fundamentally change the way that a person related to the world. And more recently, as a culture change strategy designer, working deeply embedded within social justice movements to shift how people think and feel about a whole range of issues from human trafficking to genocide intervention, domestic worker rights to police violence. I work with a lot of communications professionals and there's a lot of interest right now in culture change strategy, but mostly what people want to know and want me to tell them is what culture change strategy is. (laughs) So here's my take, and it's a work in progress. Culture change strategy is a long-term, multi-layered approach designed over time to create profound shifts in the narratives, values, beliefs, and behaviors of people, often mass audiences. Each of us has a rational mind and an irrational self. The rational mind, you know, thinks things, you know, (laughs) uh, has opinions, attitudes, mostly that we are willing to admit in public. The irrational self contradicts itself at every turn. It's impulsive, it's radical, it's messy. My rational mind says, Bridget, you can't control everything, let it go. My irrational self says, Bridget, 
If you can't control every aspect of your life, you're a failure and very, very bad things will happen to you. <laughs> a basic premise of culture change strategy is that if you want to change the deeply held beliefs and values in a person around injustice or anything at all, you have to dig underneath the rational mind and speak to the emotional, messy, irrational self. And this is the realm that I work in. I have to admit, I didn't actually come to Frank to talk to you about how I've used culture change strategy to shift the values and beliefs of mass audiences. I came to tell you about how I inadvertently used culture change strategy to change myself. You see, for years, I had drifted farther and farther away from who I really was at my core. And it began very subtly, you know, a story design session happening in a boardroom instead of a rehearsal room. But over time, I somehow morphed into a person who was far more comfortable in a strategy session than I was working inside of the messy, mysterious process of creating stories. I had lost touch with the thing that I believe to be truly magical in all of us, which is the imagination. And by that, I mean that wild space in us that harbors our curiosity and the bravery that it takes to leap into the void in search of revelation, that mad scientist in us that believes with absolute faith that we can take fragmented thoughts and emotions and memory and turn them into truly new ideas and pathways in our work. But if I'm being really, really precise and honest with you, I felt like somebody had taken a spoon and carved out my insides. I felt that hollow in my work. And that's really very difficult for me to say out loud in front of you because I deeply believe in my work. And I deeply believe in the brilliant leaders and organizations that I work with. But I was struggling to get out of bed in the morning, so afraid that although I was working, my mind was working 80 hours a week, my body, my heart was dragging behind me like a listless child desperately in need of a playmate. Toni Morrison, in her novel Sula, said, and by the way, you cannot quote Toni Morrison without adopting a deep voice, so <laughs> bear with me. She wrote, and like an artist without an art form, she became dangerous. And I felt dangerous. I felt dangerously close to shutting down, burning out, blending in. 
If not for making plays, what was my new art form? Did I have one? What if I didn't have one? Who am I then? And then it arrived. A simple email inviting me to take part in a voice and storytelling workshop led by Kristen Linklater, one of the world's greatest master teachers of voice and Shakespeare. Now, Kristen was my favorite teacher in drama school, and she had recently retired to a small island called Orkney off the coast of, native Scot of her native Scotland. I felt it immediately this deep and visceral sense that I needed to fly and travel for 17 hours across open seas <laughs> to study with Kristen. I felt that my survival depended on it. I was gonna investigate how the human body conspires with the voice and breath to tell truly resonant stories. Oh yeah, I needed this. I arrived in Orkney in the dead of winter and immediately wanted to go home. <laughs> not because it's not beautiful. It's actually magical, really. Gorgeous. No, I was terrified. Maybe it was the dawning reality that there was virtually no self-service or Wi-Fi on the island. <laughs> or maybe I had a tiny inkling that my utter creative undoing was upon me. Two days later, I found myself curled in a ball in the middle of the studio in Orkney, bawling like a baby, you know, the big Oprah ugly cry, tears streaming, snot flying, all because I couldn't say a single word in the sonnet I was rehearsing. I couldn't say the word hope. Now to be fair, hope is a deceptively simple word, right? Intellectually, hope sounds kind of pithy, hope. Hope, see it's sweet, short, straightforward, hope. Say it, hope, yeah. But when you start to break it down, as Kristen has a habit of doing, a very different story begins to unfold. So think about when we most often say the word hope, when we conjure it, it's usually when we're feeling oh, vulnerable. It's when we, really aren't sure things are going to work out for us. I hope that cancer doesn't spread. I, I hope this IVF treatment finally works. <laughs> I hope you'll call me sometime. <laughs> <laughs> Break it down. First, H. Try that. You feel that? It's like panting, right? Like wanting, 
from the very start, hope will not let you retreat into yourself. Hope says, open yourself and let air, let the world in. And then O, O. So here's the thing about O. Because of our Instagramming, texting, emojiing culture, we have managed to reduce some letters to their most embarrassing, tragic, mundane form. OMG. Oh my God. Oh my. Right? Oh. It's very small, it's very contained. We can manage this O. But when this sound was originally discovered millennia ago, it was designed to hold the deepest part of our emotional life. No, not my baby. Oh, God. Oh, freedom. Oh, freedom. Oh, oh. Since the start of humankind, this sound was discovered by mothers and fathers, warriors and lovers to conjure all of the grief, the anger, the yearning, the pain of a people. Hope demands that you open yourself and then it says, stay there, open and let all of this messy stuff that we normally keep battened down deep inside of us. Let it start to rise and rattle and maybe start to travel up your chest closer and closer to your mouth. And just when you're beginning to panic from all of this openness and the catastrophe that will clearly happen if what is in here gets out there, hope allows you Reclose yourself. Let's say the word again. Hope. So not such a simple word after all, right? So this is the journey that had reduced me to a bawling mess of tears on the floor of this studio in Orkney. And I realized that my O had lifted this big heavy boulder that was blocking the entrance to my deep imagination. I realized with great sadness that my collaborators, all of these brilliant leaders and activists and organizers had probably never actually met me. They had no idea what my messy looked like because I was thoroughly convinced that messy, which is the raw ingredients of every great work of art, had no place in my movement work. I had also discovered that 
I was very, very afraid that I was dying inside of this invisibility. How else to explain a 40-something woman who felt like I was 80, literally aching from having spent so many years creating without relating to my full instrument. I arrived back in New York with a very different understanding of my work. I now understood my job to be to spark these kinds of soulful disruptions in myself, in my collaborators, and in people, millions of people. Because I now believe that these disruptions, these discoveries of new and ancient things about human nature, why we love, why we hate, what we yearn for, I believe these are the DNA of culture change strategy work. And it's not about relying on all that we know. It's about being willing to stay inside of the not knowing long enough to discover some new way of awakening people, sparking cathartic awakening in our audiences. Kristen, once said that catharsis occurs when the blood and breath of the storyteller disrupts the blood and the breath of the audience. That. That's what I wanted to do. That was my new art form. Since my time in Orkney, I've put some of these ideas into motion through a project I call Culture Changes Us, because it does, right? When we engage in this kind of work, it should change us. Culture Changes Us is a coordinated learning system through which social justice leaders and advocates and artists can freely investigate from the inside out how stories and narratives create these cathartic awakenings in mass audiences, and how, when these experiences are delivered inside of an intentionally constructed narrative system, we can actually create broad and lasting cultural change. There's a question that's sort of in my mind. How will we, as a social justice sector, change fundamentally as we begin to integrate narrative and culture change work into our movement building? What new talents will we need to cultivate in ourselves, in our teams? I have to say, that it feels clear to me that we are living in the most dramatic of times. Times that will eat the way we've always done things for breakfast. If we can't speak powerfully and truthfully 
to the messy, emotional, irrational part of us, of millions of other people, and fundamentally change how we all feel about immigration, refugees, Muslims, black lives, women, children, democracy, the earth. People will continue to suffer. And our progressive vision, I don't think it will survive. How are we preparing ourselves for the tough work ahead? For me, disruption compelled me to reconnect with my deep, fully embodied imaginative self. Consider that disruption is a critical step for all of us in our work to change the world. A year ago, I broke open in the best sense of the word. And I wonder, might this time, this very painful, hopeful time, when America seems to be breaking open too, forced to confront and rebirth itself, might this be the perfect moment for all of us to discover new, radically new, ways of working, of creating, of relating, of building community? What might your moment of breaking open look like? What do you need to do to change the culture of you? Imagine that. I really want you to imagine that. Thank you. I want to do this justice. What do you want to say about your talk, Bridget? Um, you know, it, there are layers to it, but but this this question of invis invisibility is, I think, one that's really deep for people who do consulting. I felt like it was a failure if people saw me inside of it because it was so important to, uh, like, I felt like my work was to support. In, in many cases, movement leaders, in some cases, you know, high-profile artists to find uh, or just unleash their voices in the culture change realm. And so I worked very quietly but fiercely in those spaces. I think it's unhealthy. I think it's unhealthy to be in one's work and be afraid, actually, to show up and be visible inside of it, to use your voice, to express leadership or attempt to express leadership, and I was becoming unhealthy. I'm really grateful that Taryn had space and time to come and talk with us. One of the things that I've been so moved by is how incredibly brave she is. I think it's really hard to be an expert, 
to be somebody who has spent their career becoming deeply knowledgeable and accountable and sensitive to the needs of the immigrant rights movement and to then be one of kind of a few people in the field and in philanthropy who recognized that we needed to add to the movement technology, that culture change work mattered, that we needed to invest in it, um, and that that meant that, that she as a funder needed to understand it and learn it. To make that pivot, to open herself up to years of deep learning and listening, it's hard. So I, I couldn't really think of a, a better person to have that conversation with about what it takes to do this work and the leaps of faith that we have to take in order to do it. Bridget and Taryn have worked together for many years, and they have a very deep bond. So they're just a great example of that kind of deep thinking partnership that we should all emulate. I'm going to start us off. I, we would love to hear from you just your reflections on Bridget's talk. How does Bridget's call to break open, especially in her case to embrace disruption, right, as a means of change, resonate with you? Well, first, I reacted to the talk in a personal way out of concern for Bridget. I was surprised. I hadn't realized that Bridget had felt so depleted because I always experienced Bridget as so strong, visionary, curious, alive. And, um, and I was so glad that she had that experience of going to Orkney and finding her authentic voice again because it was after that, in 2016, that we really started to work together. And I am so grateful that Bridget was able to accept the offer to become the leader of the Pop Culture Collaborative, mm -hmm. where I had placed a lot of my hopes. Um, then, to answer your question of um, my own reaction internally for myself, Bridget's call to break open, I think it reinforced something that I had already begun to experience as a grant maker, which um, it's a profession I've been in for a long time. And for the first decade plus of my time as a grant maker, I approached it as professionally as I could, you know, analytically. Mm -hmm and taking information, lots and lots and lots of information and trying to make the best decisions and recommendations. But as the issues around immigration became more intense and emotional, and as um, the institutions I worked for really began to embrace and support immigrant leaders to tell their stories, I realized that I needed to relate to them in a different way. I needed to open myself up, to tell them who I was and why I was doing what I was doing. It's, it's not something that came 
easily to me. I'd say it still doesn't come easily to me, but that was something that I realized it was really important to do and to have authentic personal relationships as well as kind of strategic professional relationships. And so Bridget's call reinforced that this is the path. Mm-hmm. And especially <laughs> helpful for me coming at a time of embarking on a really new challenge, which is figuring out how to be a grant maker in the pop culture for social change space. What did you have to wrestle with as you transitioned from being sort of an issue-specific funder to a funder building this sort of big storytelling field? Well, after making grants for projects that um, I and others found very, very moving, we we were learning that they were reaching and moving some people, but not enough. So making the leap to working in pop culture um, made logical sense. But then what was so hard was how different it was from every other kind of grant making I had been involved in. It was a new language, new concepts. I've read the definitions of pop culture for social change, narrative change, culture change so many times. It still took such a long time to stick. It's a lot of newness. I think it was exciting, but I really felt like I didn't know how to do it. And everyone else on my team also felt like they didn't know how to do it. So that's why we were so eager to invest in a collaborative that would hire expert staff and bring together a group of advisors and partners, and we could all take this leap together. I think another challenge um, is the evidence and measurement challenge. It's really important to emphasize that culture change strategy is very research-based. There's a lot of audience segmentation, a lot of research to understand the audience's beliefs and feelings and actions and what underlies those. But Um, the attribution of change to specific interventions, like the definition and measurement of impact, the fact that change is not linear um, and that it can occur over a long period of time, accepting that and then persuading others in my institution and outside of it to accept that, that was hard. But I think what helped us over the line was the fact that we had been investing in in policy influencing and organizing and other strategies. And we saw where they were really successful, but we also saw that they couldn't change deeply held anti-immigration, anti-immigrant views. Mm-hmm. And then they weren't able to stop this shift toward far more, much more punitive and harsh and restrictive immigration policies. So we knew we had to do something more and something deeper. You know, I find it really fascinating thinking about the leap that it takes to sort of recognize that a new arena is new and that there's a kind of fear or nervousness that comes in looking out and seeing like a space that needs to be learned. And I'm curious about 
looking back on your journey into the newness, what kind of advice you might have for other people in philanthropy who are looking at that newness and trying to understand how to navigate it? Well, I think the partnerships were really important. And having others to take that leap with us, people who were from different experiences, arts funders, arts for social justice and racial justice funders, was really reassuring. (laughs) Working with you, Bridget, (laughs) and your former guys as a consultant, talking to path-breaking leaders like Ai-jen Poo and Rashad Robinson, all of that kind of helped to ask an off-the-cuff question. Where have you had the most fun in this space? I love the excitement that I see in immigrant justice leaders about the culture change strategy, about the narrative shift strategy. There's so much suffering and um, fear in the communities that we support and talk to every day. And so... um, you know, to see the promise of breakthrough ideas, to see the possibility of millions more people like really embracing the connection between immigration and America and the, the promise of our future together, that, that feels really exciting. Mm. To see how um, activated people who aren't immigrants are in their caring to see all of the desire to help. You know, the Japanese American community, which I am a member of, has been um, very activated around stopping the detention of immigrants and hearkening back to the trauma passed down by the internment of Japanese Americans. And during World War II, What I find so exciting is the partnerships built with other communities who are also suffering now or have suffered in the past from that kind of family separation. So that that gives me a lot of happiness. You mentioned there's this kind of like great and tough tension between the very, very hard, traumatic experiences that you're absorbing in your body and in your mind every day because you are working within a community that is fighting, fighting for survival, but also a kind of triumph over this moment. And at the same time, this kind of excitement, real innovation and joy that people are discovering in the realm of storytelling and culture. How do you find that you ground yourself in that sort of schism between those two ways of being that are so much a part of your everyday? How are you getting through in this moment? Um, community, 
family, having a role to play, having a purpose, using my privilege. So I would say that you have been, because of your um, groundedness in community and um, the kinds of ways that you develop partnerships, the way you have broken yourself open to evolve not only the philanthropic organization that you're part of, but how you've been a good listener, supporter, and backer of a whole new field. And so it's sort of a question I wanted to put out there of like, what's the next to break open? What are you, where would you like to see the next stage for the pop culture for social change field go? I want to see much, much more investment. There's so many promising or already impactful models and people and organizations and relationships that the Pop Culture Collaborative has identified and invested in. And what I desperately want is to see it come to fruition. You know, this is such an important time. We're really making choices about the future of our country, each one of us. I see other collaborations forming in philanthropy to promote reproductive justice, to end violence against women, to save the earth. And they're developing, or they have, narrative and culture change strategies. And this is all really um, so enriching for me and um, to be part of that bigger effort, the society-wide effort. We can see all the intersections. We don't have the capacity to get involved in them. How do we bring all of this awareness of the way everything connects into our work and working on culture and narrative change through the Pop Culture Collaborative and gives us a way to do that. I've always been really struck by to realize that and to help others to sort of embrace the fact that fundamentally doing culture change or narrative change work means letting go of your assumption that the issue that you're focused on is in a box, but that in reality, at the deep narrative and cultural level, the things that are driving people's ideas and beliefs around those issues may have nothing to do with those issues, right? And I'm wondering, during the process of your learning, what are some of the most surprising barriers or obstacles, cultural mindset, assumptions that have been unearthed for you and that you have found most startling? I think it's how conflicted people feel, even people who identify themselves as pro-immigrant, who come from immigrant backgrounds or who are, who identify themselves as liberal feel about immigration. I think it wasn't something that um, a lot of us who have been working on kind of the immigration system and immigration policy saw um, because it didn't show up in public opinion polling. So that you know, understanding that you ne- we need more than support, we need activation. It has to be so important, not just 
um, something you are in favor of, but you have to take action. And have passion. And have passion, and it has to rise to very, very high on your list of priorities. I think one of the things that really surprised me in talking with friends and colleagues um, in African-American communities and looking at some of the research was the barrier that was about feeling unseen inside of the immigration conversation. And I'm really, I'm reminded of this um, learning session that we, we were able to host around family separation and the legacy of family separation across many different communities who have that trauma experience, including African-Americans. And Susan Burton, who is a prison abolitionist and advocate and leader, said, you know, you're asking us to come and show up for you, but who showed up for us? Who showed up when the state was taking our children from us because we were serving sentences or because we were formerly incarcerated people? Like, where's the outcry? And that is a deep and painful feeling that unless you're building intentionally the strategy that is embracing and taking care of that pain, the pain of invisibility inside of someone else's issues, you know, how in the world can you expect people to like be all in and bring full heart and passion to what matters so much to, you know, so many in the immigrant rights movement. Um, and so that that was one of the moments where I had a real aha around like, you know, we are not going to sort of argue our way out of this, you know, we actually have to drop down a few levels and meet each other in that kind of deep emotional space and be brave enough to see each other and hold the complexity of how we all relate to one another. That was so beautifully said, and I I agree with you, Bridget. That was a really um, painful moment uh, as as an immigrant rights advocate for me. That was such a painful moment, and um, the way forward is for all of us to show up for all of us. <laughs> that is part of this process that unlike perhaps litigation strategy you have to really sit with this messy process of figuring out what is at the core what is the core what is really um, preventing us from moving in the direction we want to move in together working at the level of emotion um, with a research base like understanding that it's really about the actions we take to figuring out how to stand for everyone's inclusion and everyone's dignity that is our challenge and um, this is a part of it I think it was a really nice conversation and I think I'm really excited about particularly her peers in philanthropy hearing the like permission to be vulnerable and authentic in this work. We talk about this all at the time, Tracy, that we're not going to win. We are not going to survive this terrible moment unless we like go all in, unless we decide 
okay, yeah, we're going to burst into tears in the middle of a board meeting and then pull it together, pull it together and do the, th- do the thing. Um, because the bursting into tears is the acknowledgement that this is really, 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 really hard work. Yeah. And we are in the fight for our lives, literally, literally it's on our many levels. metaphorical curling on the floor in Acne or wherever you were, Scott. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not metaphorical, then, actually. <laughs> well, our metaphorical version real. of you liter- literally doing that. Um, but but is that it is that catharsis breaking open moment Yeah. Um, yeah. that allows you to, like, go yeah. all in and not hold yourself back whether it's on strategy or emotion um, or partnership, which is what's going to get us there. I think so. I think I just responded to the instinct she has to sort of bring everyone in. And even if she denies that's a form of leadership, it really, really is. Yeah. <laughs> um, and she is always constantly thinking about what does it mean? What does it mean to move to another level of, of understanding and then action? Uh, she's like instilling that in a philanthropic practice, which doesn't happen that often. So here we go, Tracy. What is the big idea that we want to take away from this episode? So I think the idea is that we really need to think about how we as funders, movement leaders, artists, strategists, need to change ourselves and how we work in order to achieve the culture change we actually seek in the world. Wonderland at Frank is a production of the Pop Culture Collaborative. Nancy Vitali and Destry Sibley produced the series. Sound engineers include Matt Noble, Mike Gilmore, Eric Elterman, and Colin Ashmead Bobbitt. Our sound designer and engineer is Samantha Gatzek. These episodes were recorded at the Awareness Group Studios in New York City, the Loft Recording Studios in Bronxville, and at WBEZ in Chicago. Special thanks to our friends at Frank, Jade Dozier, and Lauren Rawlings. To listen to other episodes of Wonderland and explore ways to build your own culture change strategies, visit our website at thisiswonderland.us. <laughs>